Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and I just want to use this opportunity to introduce myself uh, because this is the first time I am preaching to three campuses. So my name is Pastor Peter LaRufa, and I get to serve as the campus pastor at the Fort Thomas campus. And I just want to take a brief moment before we open the word to say how truly excited I am uh, that I am I now have another counterpart. It's me, it's Brian Fannin, and it's Pastor Eric Northrup at the Independence campus. So we're very, very excited. And I want to say specifically to Independence, we love you. We're excited. We are praying for you. I remember what it's like to be in the first few weeks when we launched at Newport. I remember what it's like to be in the first few weeks when we launched at Fort Thomas, when we had a different location. And so I'm excited. I know all the troubles that you're going through, but also most of the joys and how excited we are, uh, and how excited you are to finally be off the ground. So keep on keeping on. We're praying for you. We love you and have all the faith in the world that you have all the means by God's grace and through the leadership that you have there to be the second best campus of our church. We're thrilled that you're there. Anyway, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1. Hey, something that I like to do, uh, Paul talks about giving attention to the public reading of Scripture. So something I like to do when I preach, just because I like to do it, is I like to ask us to stand as the word is read publicly in honor of God's holy word. So if you're physically able, would you please stand and read along silently as I read aloud from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the Son's of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil." Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The sanctity of human life is what we are focusing on today. And the sanctity of human life is not a response to the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision 
but a biblical reality, a theological truth that has been so from day one, technically day six. And so that's where I want to start today. God gives us his word uh, so we can know his thoughts and bounce everything in life off of him. What does he think of human beings? What does he think of life? And so we're going to start there and uh, we read it so we can say, okay, I know God says this, so how should I then live, right? Two times in the text we just read, we see something to this effect. Ephesians 5 and verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so it's my goal and hope and prayer that our time together in the word would help us do just that. So we've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Keep your finger in Ephesians 5, we'll be coming back there later, but please turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And what I want to point out to you is our first point in your outline. And that is this, the sanctity of human life is deeply rooted in the word of God. Not public policy, not groupthink, not a bunch of people who decided to do something about a tragedy. The sanctity of human life, first and foremost, is deeply rooted in the word of God. It's not a reaction to anything, but a reality from the very beginning. We won't look at the whole creation account, but if you were to do that, you would see God speaking things into existence, right? Let there be light. And there was light. Let there be fish, let there be land, let there be water, let there be raccoons, let there be goats, let there be armadillos. I mean, all the things that God spoke into existence. He spoke animals into existence. He spoke reality into existence. But we see something very different when we look at the creation of mankind. And for that, I want to call your attention to Genesis 1 and verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Of all that God created, we are the only people, only only creatures created with what I'm calling a conversation. A discussion takes place within the Godhead. You see something completely different. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's like God says, hey, let's do this together. You see that in the text where it says, hey, let us, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image. This is something altogether different from the rest of creation. Hey, let's do this together. I want the triune God involved on this right here. And so uh, a discussion takes place, a, a conversation. There's deliberation. How do we know that? Because God doesn't just say, let there be mankind, let there be human beings. But he says, let us make man in our image. And so there's a discussion. It's like, let's do this. Let us make. But secondly, we need to look at that next word. Let us make. Uh, we are created through a process. This isn't God speaking things into existence like light and trees and fish and everything else. It's, hey, let's make something. Not looking back on what God had made, but from the very beginning, from this very outset of him deciding to make mankind, God says, hey, let's make man and woman. That Hebrew word for make is the same word used five chapters later when God tells Noah to build an ark, make an ark. And so he's not telling Noah, hey, speak an ark into existence. But he's saying, make an ark. It's going to take, it's going to take time. It's going to take planning and effort and skill 
and intentionality. That's how God makes mankind. And that word that's translated in your Bibles as man, that's the Hebrew word Adam. Adam is actually the generic word for mankind and later becomes the proper name. I'll give you a hint. It's Adam. It sounds a lot like Adam, right? So it becomes the proper name Adam later on. But then notice God says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. And so we're created with a conversation. We're created with a a process, but we are also the only ones created with a personal touch. That means that unlike every other thing that God created, as beautiful as it may be, as wonderful as it may be, as powerful or as grand or as amazing as it may be, the only ones that are like God are people. All of creation screams forth, there's a God, there's a God. Look at the detail behind me. Look at my design. There's a designer behind every design. Certainly all of creation gives testimony that there's a God. We read about that in Romans 1, right? That's why no one is uh, without excuse. There's a God, there's a God. But while all of creation shows that there's a God, none of it shows what he's like. Except you and me. Why? Because God said, let us make man. Men and women, mankind, in our image, after our likeness. Let's make something special, men and women, and let's make them like us. You say, you see me all dressed up here in church. Let me just let you know, I'm like so not like God, right? I am not, how, how am I like God? Well, here's the thing. You're like God uh, mentally. You can, you, you, every time someone invents a machine or writes a book or, or finger paints or enjoys music or calculates a sum or names their pet, you proclaim the fact that you are made in the image of God. Mankind was created in righteousness and holiness. Every time someone writes a law or recoils from evil or praises good behavior or feels guilty for something that they did, you're confirming that you're made in the very image and likeness of God. Or even like God socially, every time someone gets married or every time someone makes a friend or hugs a kid or attends a church, we're demonstrating that we're made in the likeness of God Emotionally and socially and morally, we are made in the image and likeness of God. The dignity of every human being comes from the fact that we are like very God. I'm pro-life because I believe that every person has been created in the image of God, the likeness of God, and therefore has intrinsic value and dignity. I'm driven by God's word. And that doesn't change, right? Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It doesn't change. We're reminded by God's never-changing word that every person is an image bearer. Every person bears the image and likeness of our great God. You can actually tell an atheist, you know, even though you don't believe in God, you still kind of remind me of him. Now, I don't know how well that would go over, but you would not be incorrect in saying that because she does. He does. They they bear his image and likeness. And that would probably, and they might respond with with anger and say, that makes me really angry. And you could say, I didn't mean to make you angry. Even your anger reminds me of God. Like, because that's how God made them. They're made in the image and likeness of God. Now, you might say, okay, 
So from what I can tell in the creation account, Adam and Eve were created, yes, by God, yes, with his image and likeness, as adults. So maybe what we glean from that is that people bear God's image and likeness when they're all grown up. Maybe there's some sort of a a, a cutoff line for when people bear his image and when they don't. Or maybe it's from this point on that people have God at work in their lives and have value and have dignity. Or when God is active in their lives and when he's not. And so for that, I'd like to ask you to turn to the Psalms. Turn to the Psalms. Psalm 139. Right in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 139. And listen to the word of God and hear how David describes God's work in his life. Let's pick it up in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And so from the very beginning, we stand out from the the rest of creation. But from our very beginning, individually, God is personally involved with our lives. Even in the womb, God is present and working slowly and intentionally. Look at verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It might come as a shock to you that I don't know a lot about knitting. But what little I do know about knitting is like nobody does this quickly. Nobody knits and multitasks. I think I'll knit while I dust and get this both done. This. Nobody does that. I think I'll fire out an email while I'm knitting this sweater. Nobody does that. It's slow. It's intentional. It's with thought and purpose. In, in, in the mind of someone who's knitting, they have a, a thing, a size, a color, a final look. And that's the metaphor that David employs when he's talking about how we are made, how we are formed even in the womb even in the womb, that God sees our unformed substance, verse 16. That even when we couldn't be seen, we were seen. Even in the womb, we're declared to be wonderful. Do you see that in verse 14? I praise you for I am fearfully and what? Wonderfully made. Again, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And David credits even his earliest moments and the entire plan for his life to God himself. Again, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet 
there was none of them. Listen to me. You were valuable before you could do anything. That's actually a pretty important point to make. Earlier, I mentioned ways in which we're created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, mentally, morally, socially. And those are all great examples of how we bear his image, how we have his likeness. You might say, okay, so we're like God when we can do those things, right? So if we can't do those things, which by the way, the unborn can't, they must not have the same dignity and value that the rest of us do. Not long ago, a pro-life candidate said, quote, I used to be pro-choice, but a friend of mine had a child. The pregnancy was inconvenient and they had considered terminating, but they chose at the last minute to keep the baby. And I've seen how this child had grown up to be a bright and talented young man. I can't imagine killing such a gifted child. So I'm pro-life. We're killing the next generation, end quote. Now, That candidate had good intentions, no doubt. But you need to understand that what he said was very, very dangerous. Did you pick up on it? Because what he's saying is that what changed his mind about life in the womb is the fact that the child grew up to be bright and talented. And my only question is, what if the child grew up to be average? What if the child had some disabilities or reduced mental capabilities? Congrats on changing your mind mind for saving the gifted children, but what about ordinary future children, future children with disabilities, future children with special needs? And so, again, your view of human dignity, your view of human value, of human worth, needs to be based on the fact that every single solitary human being, born and unborn, bears the image and likeness of God himself. And I would go so far as to say... If your view of human dignity is based on anything other than God's word, it will fall apart at some point. That's what we see day in, day out. You were valuable before you could do a thing. You have never impressed God. Wow. God has never said that about any one of us. Woo! I'm really impressed. Wow, that Peter. He's a cut above. He's just not impressed. He loves me, but it's not like I did something one day to cause him to love me more. It's not like I did something one day that caused me to have more value. And because I did that, now I bear his image even more. No, certainly we strive to be pleasing to the Lord. We strive to know his will, to discern his will. But our value was there long before we had the ability to do anything. Why? Because we have his image. Because we're made in his image. Because we're made in his likeness. And so that leads us to a question I think you should always ask. So what? I really think that's a question you should ask. So what? Right? Like what are these just fun facts to impress friends at parties? So what? Are these just things in which I can engage in a debate and spar with the other side? So what? What impact do these facts have on me on a day-to-day basis? It's a valid question. Today is Sunday. Why should I give a rip about this on Tuesday when I'm in school or at work or at home or in the gym or a coffee shop or on a plane or in a grocery store? So what? Well, for that, I would take you back to Ephesians chapter 5. 
to the text that we read earlier today. Because I want to spend the rest of our time talking about something that I see in the text very clearly. And that is that Christians need to not participate in and stand against the dignity-denying issues of our day and age because indifference is not an option. We need to not participate in and stand against the dignity-denying issues of our day and age. We cannot be indifferent. Because we are Christians, because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to give a care. We can't just turn a blind eye. And so for that, I want to go back to the passage that we opened with in Ephesians chapter 5 and look at verse 1. It starts out saying, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That like sums up every sermon you've ever heard from this pulpit, right? Like be imitators of God. Right? We could just close right now. Every day we could get a huge, every Sunday we can get a huge head start on lunch by just saying, all right, be imitators of God. That's all I've got. God bless. Thanks. That's, I mean, and that, that in and of itself is a sermon right there. Be imitators of God. But it starts out with a, a key word, therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you'd be wise to see what it's there for. And the way you do that is you look behind it. You look at what Paul has said before then when he said, okay, because if he's saying, therefore, he's saying in light of what I've just said, right? In light of what I've just written to you, let's, this is what I'm talking about. And so if you were to look back, you'd see the end of Ephesians 4, which deals with how we're to talk with one another. And we can't really get into all of it today, but uh, we'll look at a couple of them. Take a look at Ephesians 4 and verse 25. It says, therefore, another, like, where does this end? We can keep going back, but we're not. Ephesians 4, 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the what? The truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Speak the truth. Verse 26, uh, be angry and do not sin. Uh, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So that should get our attention. Don't sin in your anger because apparently, according to the word of God, it gives an opportunity to Satan. Uh, Skip down to verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So speak with a point. Speak with a purpose. Have a goal. And that goal should be the building up of someone else so that by hearing it, grace would be given. And then look at the end of chapter 4 going into chapter 5, right? There wouldn't have been a paragraph break in the original writings. There wouldn't have been verses or chapter numbers. So Ephesians 4.32 says... Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And it doesn't take long before Paul is back to talking about talking again, right? Look at verse 4, Ephesians Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Skip down to verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. 
for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And verse 10, and try to discern. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. As pro-life Christians, as Christians who embrace the sanctity of human life, we need to be different than the culture in which we live. Most people would agree with that. But even and especially if it causes us to stand out among our tribe, our group. See, here's the thing. I don't know what tribe you fit into. I don't know what group you're most like, but usually birds of a feather tend to what? Flock together. Not always, but usually people tend to align themselves with others who share similar views, similar values, similar thoughts. And so let's say you'd say, when it comes to my views on life and culture and politics, I, I actually lean kind of left. I'm, 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 I'm kind of blue. Okay, uh, but you can't be like the rest of your tribe. You can't. You need to, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You might say, you know, when it comes to my views on on life and money and culture and government and politics and all that jazz, I'm actually pretty conservative. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty right wing. If you cut me, I bleed red for more than one reason. And okay, that's great. But you can't be like the rest of your, your tribe. Do you understand that? You need to, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Because at the end of the day, friends, it's not about whether you're red or blue. And it's not about whether you're some combination, so you'd say you're purple. God isn't red or blue or purple or any of that. He's like God, right? He's his own adjective. You remember when Moses says, who should I say sent me? And God's like, uh, I am who I am, right? I, there's no, no way you can describe me. I am who I am. I am who I am. That's it. Tell them I am sent you. He is very God. He is Jehovah God, he defines what is right and wrong. And so for you, Christian, oftentimes it's not about whether you're red or blue, but whether you're right or wrong according to God's word. We have a standard. God has spoken and God has spoken clearly. And so we don't look to the group think to decide whether or not we are right and wrong. We look to God's word. God's never changing word to decide how should I live? What should I think? How should my values align instead of just turning on our favorite channel or tuning into our favorite radio station or listening to our favorite podcast or going to our favorite website? Because quite frankly, I think if you can say you're fully aligned with any one political party, you're probably not aligned with God's word. If you say, I'm a, I'm a diehard Democrat through and through, I'm on the same page with everything they say and do, you're probably pretty jacked up. Probably. If you say right is right and left is wrong and I'm a Republican through and through, I agree with everything the party says all the time. Again, probably pretty jacked up. 
less laughter when I said that. There it is. If you say, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus Christ. And I live in a fallen world, and I vote for fallen candidates in a fallen political system. And sure, I align more with one side than the other. And I'm registered with one party so I can participate to a better degree. But at the end of the day, I'm politically homeless which isn't that big of a deal because this world is not my home anyway, so I'm going to do the best I can to the glory of God to, verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And friends, so much of this is rooted in the sanctity of human life. And you know what? As much as you wish he did, God doesn't care about one group of vulnerable people more than another. He doesn't. I sometimes wish he did. But he doesn't. I sometimes get a little pushback on that as if my praying for immigrants and saying, wow, it sounds hard, or man, that said, has moved me like out of the conservative norms, or my sympathy and prayer for people on both sides of the border means I care less about preborn babies. But you know what? The Bible just doesn't allow you to prioritize one vulnerable people group over another. It just doesn't. Every advocate for that particular group would have you believe that. Why? Because they're going to highlight the portions of the Bible that mostly point to their cause. It's, 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 not a, it's not a sham. It's just if I'm talking to you about the sanctity of human life in the womb, I'm going to point to verses that talk about the sanctity of human life in the womb. And when someone else is advocating for refugees and trying to make sure that they find the asylum that they need, they're going to talk to you about where the Bible talks about the refugee and the sojourner. I mean, I mean it's, it's, not, it's not a sham. I'm just saying you can't read the Bible from cover to cover and say God cares about one vulnerable, one vulnerable group of people more than Another. Why? Because every person bears what? The image of God. Born and unborn. Near and far. Gay and straight. The citizen, the immigrant, and the refugee, and the sojourner, and the pregnant mom, and the post-abortive mom, and a survivor of abuse, and a baby in the womb. A person's a person, no matter how small or tall. On both sides of the wall, God's image is on all. And so I may lean in one direction, sure. But when I read God's word, I see ways in which I'm called to stand out from my tribe and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord to ensure I take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Let me see if I can give you some examples. Christians need to care about racism. And you say, oh, come on. 
Really? Did you just do that? You're, you're going to somehow tie racism to the sanctity of human life. Absolutely, 100%, unequivocally, and without apology. Racism is a pro-life issue. You say, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with the babies and the unborn. Okay, we're, we're talking about the sanctity of human life. Not the sanctity of human birth, but the sanctity of human life, which includes human birth. And so when we broaden it and we talk about the sanctity of human life, which is what you see in the scriptures, lots of other things become issues that we should care about, like racism. Because when someone speaks of a person as less than because they're a certain color or ethnicity, you need to understand that that comes from the same heart and the same mind as a person who speaks of someone who is less than because they have a certain gestational age. Both heap insult on God, the image on whom he or she bears. And so we take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We need to care about abortion. And not see it as something we just vote against every once in a while, but really, really pray that the greatest ongoing Holocaust ever in the history of God's green earth would be stopped and that babies and pregnant women and post-abortive moms and dads matter because they're made in the image of God. We need to care. It's become the norm in our nation for so long, and so I think we're really used to it. Yeah, I'll vote the way I should vote when I get the chance to vote. But until then, I mean, it just kind of is what it is. But that can't be. We welcome the post-abortive mom and tell her Jesus died for people just like her. And we come alongside and support the work of those who reach out to abortion-vulnerable women. And we welcome the post-abortive dad and say there's forgiveness for you, even you, if you believe in Jesus Christ and are saved. We don't take part in unfruitful works of darkness, but we expose them. Why? Because every person bears the image and likeness of God from the womb to the tomb. Christians need to care about Pornography. You say, that's a stretch, bro. It's sanctity of human life Sunday. What is this, like your one chance throwing all the things? How is that a pro-life issue? Well, because pornography ruins the viewer who is made in God's image and shows what the viewer really thinks of another image bearer. Listen to me. I don't know the hearts and minds of everyone, but I would venture to say there's not a single little girl out there currently dressing up as Elsa who wants to be a sex slave when she grows up. It's an unbelievably sick, multi-billion with a B dollar jacked up industry and when you look at them you consume them 
and promote an industry of slavery and sexual abuse. When you view pornography, you view people as objects. God intended them to be enjoyed sexually by their spouse. You're not marrying them. You're using them because you see them as less valuable than a human being. You just use them when you want and shut off the screen when you're done. You don't see them as created in the image of and likeness of God. They're just objects. And friends, listen to me. You can't compartmentalize your view of humanity. You think you look at porn at night and then vote to save the unborn during the day and think you give a flip about the sanctity of human life. You do not. So stop. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try. And take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. I am more and more concerned about people who have a flawless pro-life voting record but deny the sanctity of human life in these other areas. Because it's inconsistent and it's ruining our walks with the Lord and it's ultimately ruining our witness. Christians who care about the sanctity of human life care about immigration and refugees. And they care about it by acknowledging it's a very complex situation. But they know that everyone involved bears the image of God. I don't know what's going on at any border crossing because I don't trust the news. Even the news that claims it's fair and balanced. They've actually dropped that slogan, by the way. But I don't, I don't trust the news. When I see the bumper sticker, I don't trust the left-wing news media, that just raises concern for me because I think they probably wholeheartedly trust the right-wing news media. And the left-wing and the right-wing are attached to the same bird, and that bird's name is money. Money. And every news outlet out there is feeding what they want their viewers to see because they care about ratings. They don't care that you get a full story. They don't. It's about money. You're never receiving an unbiased story, ever. I don't care what you read or what you watch or what you listen to. It's never unbiased. Always know you're always receiving one side of the story. And I'm always convinced I'm being fed something to boost ratings more than it is honest journalism. No one's interested in giving. No one's got me on their mind. I really hope Peter can understand both sides of this. That's why we're doing this. And so you listen to things about one news outlet says they're separating children from families at the border. Another one says they're not doing that. And another one says they're separating them, but it's for their protection and it's just for a short while. One web, website says that they're in rooms. Another one says they're in cages. And then another one says they're in cells. So that's kind of a room and kind of a cage. A, another news outlet says they're given ample food and water. And another website says they're drinking out of toilets. And one group tells you only stories about the drug dealers. Would have you believe that everyone down there's a drug dealer. And another website tells you only stories about families looking for a better life. And have you believe that no one down there's a drug dealer? 
Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip. It, it's all confusing, and, and you don't know what's going on because, like me, you're here and not there. And all I have is an internet connection and an opinion. And so we run our mouths and we post and we tweet and still don't know. And I think that a Christian who really cares about the sanctity of human life can do one thing for the glory of God in our position. Shut up. You say, that kind of offends me. Shut up, please. So that still kind of offends me. You probably really need to shut up, man. Get offline. Unplug. And pick up the only book that will actually give you a balanced view of people and remind you that the border patrol and the drug dealers and the single dad and the displaced kids and the sex trafficker and the illegal immigrant and the person seeking asylum from ethnic cleansing and the one trying their luck at the border because it's better than what they're experiencing at home, the man, the woman, the gang, and the family all bear the image of God. And a know-it-all attitude or saying you're pro-life, but really just being pro-birth. With a deficient understanding of the sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb, this is what it comes down to, will all prove to be detrimental to our ability to truly live out the great commission, to truly share the good news of the gospel and to love God fully and love our neighbor as ourselves and to try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We're killing our witness in the name of groupthink. We're weakening our impact as we strive to live out the gospel in the name of identity politics. And so we would do well to take another look at our passport and be reminded of the fact that we really are citizens, first and foremost, of heaven. And let that impact how we live all of our days. And so as pro-life Christians, we need to do our part in exposing the deeds of darkness. We need to try to discern the will of the Lord. And that's going to come from the word of God and not from groupthink and not from websites. The word of God. Now, indifference isn't an option. We have to care. You have to give a care. But please understand that caring about something is not synonymous with doing something. Do you ever hear people say, if you care, you'll do something about it? That's, like, ridiculous. Right? I mean, I mean I'm a finite person with finite resources and faculties. I can only do so much. 
But I pray to a God who is limited by nothing. Nothing. God's not like, oh, I'm busy. I'm busy in Chicago. You want me to do something down there? That's way, ah. Whenever we pray to God, his response is, I can do that. I can do that. So I pray to a God who is limited by nothing. And so I can be sad about a people group, but not do anything about it. That's not inconsistent. That's not wrong. What's wrong is for me to say, it's not my problem, so I don't care. And for me to grow calloused and for me to lose compassion and for me to not feel sad and not say, oh, Lord, be with them, do something, help them. You have to care. You may not be able to do anything about it, but you have to give a care. And so we pray. We pray for people and situations that, for which we have no details or firsthand knowledge because we know they what? Bear the image of God. God knows what is best. God controls the hearts and minds of our leaders. He holds their hearts and their minds in his hands like streams of water. So I go straight to the top. Straight to the top and pray, pray, pray for an end to abortion. And pray, pray, pray for people to be protected where I can't protect them. But I can't tell you, and we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks when we talk about prayer. I can't tell you how many times God has used my prayers about other people to replace contempt in my heart with compassion. And I wasn't praying for that. We need to welcome correction from each other when we start to act or sound more like someone who is in the dark rather than in the light. See, tribalism is a scary thing. The the group think, the echo chambers that we like to fit into is a scary thing because it's very hard to not want to be thought well of by the tribe. But we're Christians. Or we're not Republicans who happen to be Christians or Democrats who happen to be Christians or independents or libertarians who just happen to be Christians on a Sunday. We're Christians before we're anything else. And so we align with Christ above all and do our best to foster an environment where open and honest discussions can take place without fear of judgment and welcome correction from others without painting them with a broad brushstroke into another category and into another tribe. We can learn by listening and reading about people and situations we have no firsthand knowledge of. I still may not be able to do anything about it. But I want to learn. And I want to learn about people and situations I have no firsthand knowledge of. I made a weird, like, New Year's resolution last year. It was really weird. I decided that I wasn't going to talk to white people about racism anymore. Because I feel like I have that perspective already. Right? And I'm like pretty fly for a white guy, but that's not going to help me understand anything outside of my norm and outside of my situation. So I, I'm part of a majority culture, and this is something that I'm told affects minorities, so I'm not going to talk to the majority. I'm going to talk to the minority culture. And say, hey, is this a thing? Like, do you, are you affected by this? I'm not. I'm not. So are you affected? What's that like? I don't know. What's it like? And I did that, and I learned a lot, and I grew in compassion. And so I solved it. No, not at all. But I know, and now I pray differently than would have happened if I talked to another white dude. 
Say, hey, what's it like? It's, help me understand. I don't, I don't get it. I think we need to look for opportunities to advocate for the most vulnerable among us and share the love and hope of Christ. Now, I don't know if you heard, but it's an election year. I mentioned political homelessness before, which I think is actually the best place for a Christian to be in, who live in a fallen world and vote for fallen candidates and in a fallen political system. I'm not saying you shouldn't register. It's part, I'm, I'm, I'm registered with a political party to participate. You have to play. You've you got to be in it to win it, right? So I, I'm not saying don't register. I'm talking about our hearts and our minds. I think in my mind, it's better for me to be political, politically homeless and to identify first and foremost as a Christian. I also said you can't find in your Bible one vulnerable group prioritized over another. And until Jesus is on the ballot, which he's not, yet. No, he's not. No candidate or political party will ever consistently advocate for all the vulnerable people groups that God cares about. And so sadly, a vote for one group of vulnerable people oftentimes is voting unintentionally, hopefully, against another group of people, and I hate that. So here's how I roll for what it's worth. I'm a single-issue voter, but probably not how you think. Single-issue voting can be divided into at least two categories. If your single-issue sufficient, that means all it takes is for a candidate to align with you on one issue, and that's enough for them to get your vote. Single-issue sufficient. If they align with me on that one single issue, that's sufficient for me to, to, to vote for them. So when voting for a, a congressman or congresswoman, a senator, a president, their role will likely impact more than the unborn. And so someone who cares for the unborn but doesn't know squat about foreign policy or trade or leadership or is opposed to God in other areas of life or something like that, that person doesn't get my vote even if they care about the unborn. Does that make sense? Because I'm not single-issue sufficient because I care. I think, I think that issue is paramount. Uh, but I also acknowledge that there's more that goes into running a country than, than that. Like, I wouldn't be a good president. Uh, because I, I feel very passionately about this, but I don't know about those other things. And now, I'm on the internet saying I wouldn't be a good president. So that would just come back to bite me, and the other side would say, vote for Peter? He says you shouldn't. Boom, boom, and that would just take me out. So I'm locked into this pastor thing now. I think single-issue su sufficient voters are a dangerous bunch because they're laser-focused on one area over many others. I'm what you call a single-issue dispositive voter. That means in order for me to consider voting for someone, they need to advocate for the unborn. Does that make sense? So if they advocate for the unborn, it's like, sign me up. I'm not that guy. If you want me to consider voting for you, you need to advocate for the unborn. I still may not vote for them because of other reasons, but I won't even consider them. Like, in order to be in the realm of possibility of getting a vote from Peter LaRuffa, I need to have a fair amount of confidence that they won't expand 
the murder of the unborn and will stop it. And you say, why? You said God doesn't prioritize one group of people over another, and, and he doesn't. But I do, and here's why. Numbers. Numbers. The single greatest Holocaust ever is ongoing. In the womb, at 61.6 million lives lost. That we know of in our country since the legalization of abortion. And so... While all vulnerable people metaphorically lack a voice, there is one people group that literally lacks a voice. And so my vote is with the unborn every time because they can't vote or advocate or speak for themselves. And they're underrepresented. And so that's why they get my vote. I have one vote. And I want to get the biggest bang for my vote. And while God doesn't prioritize one people group over another, I would love to do what I can as a Christian and as a human being to ensure that I advocate for the people group that is most neglected. And the numbers just speak for themselves. And so it's my hope and prayer that we would set the ground floor of human dignity, worth, and value at the smallest person possible and work our way up and out from there. As opposed to setting it somewhere else and then thinking, okay, so if they're less than that, they may not matter. They're less than that. They don't have the value. They don't have worth. Let's set the ground floor of human dignity and worth and value at the smallest person possible and work our way up and out from there because a person's a person no matter how small. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. And we have heavy hearts. And we come before you who are in control of all things. Uh, I, I taught you nothing this morning. Nothing. There's nothing you don't know. You are omniscient. You are omnipresent. And so would you help us to be fruitful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, to discern uh, what your will is and how we might please you, and to do everything we can to be glorifying you every day of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.